Hallelujah. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 5. I'd like to encourage you to please get the teaching that I've been doing last night and today. I think it's powerful. You know, Charlie and Jill said this morning, says, do you listen to your teaching? I said, sure. Man, if I don't enjoy it, I don't know why anybody else ought to enjoy it. I think it was awesome. I thought it was really good. You need to hear the things I was teaching last night and this morning and then tonight. You know, I've never heard anybody else teach this exactly the way I teach it. I'm not saying that nobody else has this revelation, but I'm just saying the way that I've put it together is the way that God spoke it to me. And it has really rung my bell. This has changed my life, the things that I'm sharing with you. We've been talking about the true nature of God. What is God really like? There's a misconception about what God is like. And this will affect the way that you relate to God. You know, I don't know the majority of you in here. I have people come up and say, well, we know you because I tell all of these stories. I tell you everything about me, so it feels like you know me. But, you know, I don't know you. And if, I, if you just came up to me tonight... And if I had never met you before, and then immediately after you leave, somebody comes up and says, did you know that this person is a pervert, this person is a liar, they're a thief? If they lied and misrepresented you, did you know if I don't know you, that would have an impact on what I think. I may not form a complete opinion, I may not uh, judge you without giving you an opportunity, but I guarantee you it'd make me cautious. But if you come up and try and you know, criticize Jamie. I know Jamie in the scriptural sense of the word. Amen. And I can tell you what Jamie is like, and I know what Jamie's going to do. And if you tell me that she's done this, this, and this, and if it's contrary to her nature, you know what? I would reject it because I say, I don't care what you say. I know Jamie. I know how Jamie's going to act. I know Charlie and Jill. I know a lot of these people, and I can guarantee you that if you came up and started trying to criticize them or misrepresent them. I know what they will and what they won't do because I know them. And see, this is the reason that people have fallen for some of the lies about God is because the truth is we don't know Him. We have people tell us that God is the one who sends hurricanes and earthquakes and is killing people and causing judgment and God struck this person with cancer. I tell you what, if you know God, you know that that's not the way that God is. There's people who say those things and, it's, and there's a lot of people confused by it and they aren't sure whether God, they know that God can do anything, but they aren't sure God will do it because they don't know God. If you truly knew how good and how much God loves you, you would know that He has nothing but good things in store for you. His plans are only good and you wouldn't fall prey to the doubt and the deception and a lot of the things. The only reason you doubt God is because you don't truly know Him. If you knew God, He is the most faithful, faithful person that you could ever imagine. God has never broken His Word. The Bible says in Hebrews 1-3 that all things, the universe is held together by the power of His Word. If God was to ever break a promise, the whole world, you and me, everything would self-destruct. It's held together by the integrity of God's Word. God has never broken a promise ever. And for us to worry about, well, will He fulfill what He says? It's just because you don't know Him. All doubt has its root in the fact that you don't know God. So this is what we've been talking about. And a lot of our misconceptions about God come from Scripture. Because we haven't understood properly 
the way that God operated under the Old Covenant versus operating under the New Covenant. I shared a lot of things about that last night. This morning, I gave, I don't know, at least 15 or 20 scriptures that talked about that the law was to kill, to strengthen sin, to condemn. It made sin come alive. It gave sin occasion against us. It makes you guilty. It stops your mouth. It gives you the knowledge of sin. And on and on and on it goes. The law wasn't given to help you, but the law was given to help sin defeat you. I shared scripture on that this morning. Some of you may think, that is impossible. How dare you say it? That's exactly what the scripture says. The law wasn't given to give you victory over sin, but to allow sin to have victory over you. And the reason for that is because the truth is sin had already defeated you and we were deceived thinking that we could overcome it in our own strength and power. So God just strengthened sin, made it have so much dominion over us that the logic behind it was to make you despair of ever thinking that you could earn righteousness with God, right standing with God through your own goodness and it would just make you say, God, if this is what you demand, have mercy on me. That was the purpose of the law was to make you cry out for mercy instead of trying to be self-righteous and save yourself. And it's one of the slickest deceptions of the devil that he's ever done is to make people embrace the law as if it was a wonderful thing that God gave to help us. The law was given to make sin come alive, to kill you, to condemn you, and all of these things. It has a purpose in its right place. I'm going to be talking about some of that tonight. So here in Romans chapter 5, I just want to show you some scriptures. This is one of the most astounding scriptures in the whole Bible to me. Um, I've never heard anybody else minister on this. Again, I don't think that I'm the only one that has this revelation. But to me, this is such a powerful scripture. I just wonder why people don't preach on this. It's awesome. And uh, I wish I had time to put all of this in context. But Romans chapter 5 is a powerful chapter talking about the grace of God. And look in verse 8. It says, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We often take that verse out of context and just use it to make this point, that God loves the sinner. He died for you while you were yet a sinner. And that's 100% true. There's nothing wrong with that. But in context, he's not trying to make the point that God loves sinners. That's not the point that he's making. The point that he's making is in verse 9, and on the way to that, he just says... Look at this in context. Verse 8, it says, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by faith, we shall be saved from uh, wrath, or being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. The point that he's making is that if you can accept that God loved you while you were a sinner, much more now should you accept that God loves you now that you have accepted that and have been purged by His blood. So he's using the fact that God loves sinners as a stepping stone to saying God loves you even more now that you are born again than He did before you were born again. And yet the average person believes God loves me much less. You may not say it that way, but let me just present this to you. When you came to the Lord for salvation, how much had you been fasting and praying and studying the Word and going to church and paying your tithes and doing all of these holy acts? 
Most of you were just out there totally doing whatever, living in sin, rebellious at God. You hadn't been paying your tithes. You weren't reading the Bible and fasting and praying. And yet, you came to God and received the greatest miracle you could ever receive, which is salvation, while you had zero good works to your credit. You came just singing, just as I am, without one plea. And you accepted the greatest miracle that you could ever receive, which is forgiveness of sins. But now that you're born again, you may come to the Lord and have a cold, which is minor in comparison to getting forgiven of your sins. And yet, if you haven't been reading your daily Bible readings, if you got mad at your wife on the way to church, if you didn't pay your tithes, you're just absolutely certain God won't heal you of your cold because you haven't done everything right. Man, what a paradox here. What an inconsistency to think that you could receive salvation, be redeemed from hell with no good works to your credit, but now you've got to do all these things right to get healed of a cold. That's inconsistent. The Bible says over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means that if you got saved by putting faith in God's grace, not in your performance, well, if that's the way you got saved, that's the way you get healed, that's the way you get delivered, that's the way you get everything else. But sad to say, most people come to the Lord and trust God totally for salvation. But then after we get saved, we think that the way we maintain our relationship and get answers to prayer is by us doing all of these things. And if we fail to do it, then our faith fails. Because our faith isn't in a Savior, our faith is in us, and when we fail, we just think, well, God can't move in our life. Here's another way of saying this. If a person came into this service tonight who was drunk, did you know that most of you would go up to a drunk and tell him about how much God loves him? That God's got something better for you. God can change your life. You can get set free. You aren't reaching your full potential. God loves you and you administer grace and mercy and love towards a drunk. But let that guy get born again and then come back tomorrow night drunk again. And you know what many of you would do? You would have ministered grace to him if he was lost. But if he claims to be saved, you'd go up and say, how dare you do this? Man, Jesus died for you. You better straighten up. God won't answer your prayers. You wonder why nothing's working for you. It's because you're a drunk and and you would start ministering law to him if he gets saved. That's inconsistent. This is what Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 3. Are you so foolish? And in the Greek, the word literally is stupid. Are you so stupid that you started in the Spirit and now you're made perfect in the flesh? You receive salvation totally by the grace of God, but now you've got to do all of these things in order to have God move in your life. It's inconsistent. That's what he's pointing out right here. And then the whole thing is summarized in verse 10. It says, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled unto God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. If you could accept that God reconciled you unto Himself when you were living in sin as a lost man, much more now that you're a Christian should you believe that God loves you, not much less, much more. If you aren't aren't living and doing everything right, God loves you much more now as a Christian than He did when you were a lost man not doing anything right. It's exactly the opposite of what most people think. 
And again, the reason for this is because before you were born again, you didn't care about the law. You didn't care about the rules of right and wrong and all this. You were out there just living in sin and enjoying the pleasures of sin. Now that you're born again, you love God and want to serve Him. And so somebody comes along and says, All right, if you want to please God, then you've got to do this and this and this and this and this to please God. And then when you fail to live up to all those standards, you are just grief-stricken. You're smitten. The very fact that you're so condemned and feel so unworthy is a great indication that you love God. You were even more unworthy before you got born again, and yet you didn't feel bad about it then. The very fact that you're now condemned about the things that you used to do and enjoy it is a good indication that you've been changed. Man, those are powerful scriptures. Then in verse 11 it says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Boy, this is something I could spend an hour on. I'm just going to hit this real quickly. But most people think it's what you did that caused you to become a sinner. You think, I sinned, I did this and this and this, and this made me a sinner. Nope, sin entered the world through one man. It says, wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. Uh, And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. What made you a sinner wasn't your actions of sin. You had a sin nature that you were born with. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. That didn't mean she had an adulterous relationship. It meant that all of us were born with a sin nature. And you sin as a result of the sin nature. It's not your sins that make you have a sin nature. It's your sin nature that make you sin. That's what this is saying. Sin entered the world through Adam, not through you. You became a sinner through Adam. As in Adam, all dies. So in Christ shall all be made alive. It goes on to say that right here in Romans chapter 5. That's an important truth. Some of you may not see that, but that's another message. But here's what I wanted to get to. Here's the scripture that is just so powerful. In verse 13 it says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. That is one radical truth. Until the law, this is talking about the days of Moses when the law was given. Sin was in the world. That means people sinned before the time of Moses. But God didn't impute sin before the law was given. That's a radical truth. Another truth that goes along with this is in Romans chapter 4. Look at this real quickly. In uh, Romans chapter 4 verse 14. It says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. I'm going to make you think right here. I hate to do this because I know that most people don't like to think when you come to church. You come to be entertained, fired up, motivated, cheerleading thing. But, you know, it would help you if you would think and use your brain for something besides a hat rack. This would really help you. Amen. Look at this. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed 
where there is no law. The word impute is a legal term or an accounting type of term where it means that you put on the books. For instance, we use a credit card today. And did you know when you use a credit card to buy something, you don't really pay for that right then. What that credit card does, it has on there information about you and that allows the person that you're buying it from to put it on your account, to impute it unto you, and then they send you a statement and you have to pay for that later. But that's basically, it's an old English word that we don't use a lot, but it's the exact same thing. We use this principle all of the time. You buy something and it's imputed unto you. When it means that it's not imputed, that would be the same as if you give your credit card to somebody, but they never ran the charges, they never charged you, you never get a bill. It's exactly as if you didn't purchase the thing at all. No credit of you ever having done it. It's just like you never bought it. That would be not imputing it unto you. And this says that prior to the time that the law was given, people were sinning, but God wasn't imputing holding their sins against them. You know, this is a radical concept. This is not the way most people view God's relationship with man. Most people have it pictured that the moment Adam and Eve sinned, here was holy God and now man was unholy and there was this huge gulf between them and God could not fellowship with unholy man and so He drove man out of the garden because God was holy and they weren't and there was an immediate rejection by God towards man because of their sin. That's not what this verse is saying. It says until the days of Moses, God wasn't imputing men's sins unto them. Some of you are saying, well, I, that's just not what I believe. Well, I found that most people don't let the Word get in the way of what they believe. They believe something just because this is, the way I, this is the way I want to believe it. But you know what? If the Word means anything to you, you need to seriously consider what it says. Look over here in Genesis chapter 3 and let me illustrate this to you. Genesis chapter 3. This is where Adam and Eve sinned and they were driven out of the Garden of Eden. And so here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Verse 23 says, Therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. That means it links the 23rd verse with the 22nd verse. Here is the reason that God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. In verse 22, it was lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now most people interpret that as punishment. God didn't want us to live forever and so this was God's punishment and He drove us out of His presence. I'm going to show you in the fourth chapter He was still walking and talking with man in an audible voice. God didn't separate man from His presence. Man left the presence of God is what it says in Genesis 4.16. So what, why did God drive man out of the Garden of Eden? You know, if you understand this properly, it was actually because of love for them. He didn't want us living forever in a fallen state. 
He didn't want us to eat of this tree that would have granted us physical life forever. And yet, just think about this. I know that most of us would love to live forever in this physical body. We don't even like to think about dying. We think what a terrible thing. And it certainly isn't God's original plan. But now that sin has come into our life, did you know that death, especially for the believer who has a promise that we're going to live forever in the presence of God in a glorified body. There will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tear. Did you know that death is infinitely better than living forever in this fallen state? Just think about all of the hurt that you've had. Some of you have had a lot of tragedy in your life. Some of you have suffered big time. Imagine if you would have been alive for 6,000 years, all of the tragedy you could have suffered in a lifetime. Not just emotionally, but think, what if uh, Hitler, Pharaoh, Mussolini, Idi Amin, and all of these guys, what if they couldn't die? What if these people, there was no end to them? They just showed up somewhere else. And if all of the evil, all of the ungodliness that has ever happened in the earth, what if Sodom and Gomorrah had not have been able, if God hadn't been able to eradicate them and stomp that out? What if bestiality and sodomy was the law of the land? We can't even imagine how ungodly this life would be, how much hurt and pain there would be. Think what it would be like if you were born deformed and somehow or another, you know, you had some kind of an impairment and there was no hope of ever getting made perfect. You couldn't die and someday in heaven you'll be perfect and complete. But you're going to live forever totally blind, totally deaf, a mute. You know, we got a little girl over here that the Lord, I believe, healed this morning. We prayed with her. She's been unable to speak and she was saying some words for the very first time. I don't know, 12 years old. That's awesome. I believe she's going to be perfect. But what... What would it be like to live for 6,000 years and never be able to express yourself, never be able to see, never be able to hear? What would it be like to have arthritis and pain for 6,000 years and have it get worse and worse and worse and yet you couldn't die? What would it be like to have the botch, the itch, all of the things that we've got. What would it be like to have all of the problems that we have in this life and yet there's no hope of it ever getting any better. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse, but you could never die. What would it be like to see your children if they're born with Down syndrome or something to never, never, never be any better? What would it be like to have a hundred million people living on the earth with Down syndrome and they just are going to continue like that for eternity? You know, if you would stop and think about it, God had a better plan than us living forever in a fallen, sinful state. It wasn't punishment that God drove us out. It was a consequence of sin, but it was actually an act of mercy. God didn't want us living forever with the hatred and the strife and people unable to stomp it out and stop it because they couldn't die, they were just going to resurface someplace else and they were going to continue to just spew out this demonic stuff. Man, God had something better for the world than that. You know, death is actually a merciful thing because people only have a certain amount of time to spew their venom and their poison and then it's over with. 
you can stop things like that. And especially for the believer. Now we can go into the presence of God and we've got, man, we can comfort ourselves with the fact that we are going to be forever with the Lord. If you're poor right now, someday you're going to live in a mansion on streets of gold. If you're sick, someday you are going to see perfect manifestation of that healing. If you've been hurt, someday there will be no more crying, no more tears. And the former things are passed away. You won't even remember them anymore. All of it's going to be gone. Heaven's going to be a blast, and it's a lot better than what we've got right here. The Lord... The Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden not because He hated them and didn't want to fellowship with them. It's because He loved them and He didn't want them to eat of this tree and live forever in a fallen, corrupted state. See, you need to readjust your thinking right here because, again, we've thought that here's holy God and the moment man became unholy, God couldn't have anything to do with you. Kick you out of my house. I don't want to see you. Get out of here. That's not what he did. And in the fourth chapter, we find that the Lord was still walking and talking with man. He was speaking to him in an audible voice. He was still fellowshipping with them. There was no difference from God's standpoint because according to Romans chapter 5 verse 13, he wasn't imputing their sin unto them. He wasn't treating people like sinners. He wasn't rejecting them and he wasn't punishing them. Let me just say this while I'm thinking about it. I'll go through Roman, I mean Genesis chapter 4 and show you some things. But if you would just stop and study the Word. Did you know Leviticus chapter 18 says that if you marry a half-sister, either the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, that it's an abomination in the sight of God and you must be killed. It's punishable by death. That's under the law. Did you know that Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah? And God didn't punish him. God didn't kill him. God didn't rebuke him. God didn't impute that sin unto him. And the Bible even calls Abraham twice the friend of God. God was friendly with a man who was living in a sexual abomination. And yet God didn't impute it unto him. When do you think God decided that marrying your half-sister was wrong? Only in the days of Moses. No, God's the same. He didn't change. But He just wasn't imputing it unto people. He didn't tell people those kind of things. Did you know under the Old Testament He allowed people to have multiple wives because of the hardness of their heart? He didn't impute that sin unto them. And only under the New Covenant did He ever tell us that it was His will for us to only one man to have one wife and not to have multiple wives. But because of the hardness of our heart, he allowed people to have multiple wives. Abraham had multiple wives. David had multiple wives. Moses had multiple wives. People who were mightily used of God. It's amazing how we just skip these details and we think that everybody who was used of God was such a holy, mighty man of God. Did you know Abraham not only had multiple wives and not only married his half-sister, but Abraham was so self-centered and cared about himself that his wife was so beautiful at 60-something and then again at 90-something that he thought people were going to kill him to get to his wife. And so he told Sarah, he says, just tell them that you're my sister, which was a half-truth. And he was willing, he was willing to let people commit adultery with his wife to save his own neck. Did you know that's rotten? That was rotten. That was weak. 
That was not being a man. That was not having integrity. That's rotten. And this is the guy who was chosen by God and the friend of God. He was a scoundrel. But he could sure believe. He really believed the promises of God. And it was faith that pleased God, not this guy's performance. This guy did some serious things wrong. Going back to Leviticus chapter 18, you can find out that for a man to marry two sisters while the sisters are both alive was an abomination. And if you do that, you have to be put to death. Leviticus 18 says that. Jacob or Israel married uh, Leah and Rachel and it was an abomination. And if they would have lived under the law, God would have killed them. But prior to the law, here were people living in sin and yet this man Israel who had multiple wives and two of them, he had four wives, two of them were sisters that was totally against the heart and the nature of God. God didn't hold that sin against them and instead this man had so much pull with God that he wrestled with an angel all night long and prevailed. A man who was living in a sexual abomination to God. It's amazing how we just miss these little details and think, oh man, Israel must have been a holy guy. He was a scoundrel. His name was Jacob, Sir Planner. He was a liar. He was a thief. Now, he changed from those things, but you know what? It still wasn't his performance that earned him relationship with God. It was the grace of God. Prior to the time that the law was given, God was being merciful unto people and not imputing their sins unto them. Look right here in the fourth chapter. It says in verse 1, that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she bare, she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell." Now again, let me just challenge you to think. How did Cain and Abel know about offering sacrifices? See, we've grown up with the Word and we know culture and we've seen what people do and we just take some things for granted that, you know, here's God and He's got to be appeased and sacrifices have to be offered. How did they know about offering sacrifices? The Bible wasn't written. Nobody had ever offered a sacrifice. It doesn't say that... Uh, Adam and Eve offered sacrifices. I've had some people say, well, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, God killed an animal and made coats of skins for them. So in type, in picture, symbolism, he showed that there had to be shedding of blood to cover their sin. Well, you know what? If I would have been Adam and Eve, and if I would have had to have figured that out from symbolism, I might have missed it. I mean, once you understand sacrifices, it's easy to go back and understand all of this. But you know what? To me, that's not a clear indication... Uh, and it certainly doesn't show that you're supposed to bring the, the uh, first fruits and offer them. That was later under the Levitical law that you were commanded to bring your first fruits. So where did they get this knowledge? Well, the logical answer would be that God told them. God talked to them. He didn't just break off fellowship and relationship and that's it. You're on your own and God just left and man was now on his own. The logical answer is that God was talking to them just the way that he talked to him in the Garden of Eden. And let me ask you this, how is it that God showed respect 
unto Abel's offering and didn't show respect unto Cain's offering. Again, most people don't even think about this. They just take it for granted. Well, how did they know? They didn't have the ability to hear God's voice on the inside the way we do as New Testament believers. Later in this exact passage of Scripture, God was speaking in an audible voice unto them. The context would lead you to believe that He was talking to them. There was some visible or audible manifestation of God that showed He was pleased with Abel's offering and displeased with Cain's offering. Now again, this doesn't fit the model that most people have that God just immediately rejected man because of sin. No, the Bible says, Romans 5, 13, that until the law, God wasn't imputing man's sins unto them. He wasn't dealing with man according to their sins. God was being merciful. Again, most of us have this picture of an angry God that, man, we ticked him off and boom, there goes God, you're on your own. Here's the wrath of God. Nope, the Bible teaches us that it was mercy that drove them out of there because He loved them, didn't want them to live forever in that fallen state. Here He is walking and talking with people. This is at least 30 years after the fall of Adam and Eve. People back in those days didn't even get married until there was 150 and things like that. I'm sure that Cain and Abel were at least grown men. They were 30 years. 30 years after the fall, God's still walking and talking, showing approval, some either audible or visible manifestation. God was still present with man. And look at what he said. After God told Cain that he was displeased with his offering, it says in verse 8 that Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain. Now again, he wasn't born again. This wasn't in his heart. This wasn't just an intuitive knowledge. There is no reason to believe that this is anything else than an audible voice from God. And God said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And look at Cain's reaction. He said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Now think about this. Did you know that the average child, by the time they graduate from high school, has seen in excess of 200,000 brutal murders on television? So us, having been exposed to violence, hatred, death, that would be one thing for us. We could say that we're insensitive towards it. But here's the first person who had ever killed another person on the face of the earth. There was no precedent. Nobody had ever killed a person before. It was the first time it had ever happened. Think about what that would be like to kill a person and there was no precedent. You'd never even heard of it happening. You'd never seen a dead person. You'd never, you'd never seen a person die. Here he is with the blood still on his hands, the murder weapon in his hands, and an audible voice out of heaven says, Where's your brother? And you just put the knife behind your back and say, I don't know. I don't, I'm not my brother's keeper. Did you know Cain's reaction reveals a lot? If you had just murdered somebody, and if you still had the blood on your hands, and an audible voice out of heaven says, where's your brother? They wouldn't have to arrest you or prosecute you. You'd die on the spot. You'd just, <laughs> you'd be dead. That's it, man. You'd know the jig is up. Man, I'm in trouble. You know, for him to just lie to God shows, you know, the old phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. 
This shows that he was so used to having God talk to him that he didn't respect and reverence God anymore. It was commonplace. He had grown up with God and the audible voice of God. It didn't mean anything to him. If you think about it, I, I just challenge I can't see any other way to interpret this. A man has just killed another man. An audible voice from heaven comes and he just lies to God as if it's no big deal. It's just no different than anybody else. That says volumes. And one of the things it says was that God didn't just cut mankind off and refuse to visit with them and fellowship with them. God was still walking and talking with man and being merciful unto them, not imputing their sins unto them. Now I'm sure that God was grieved I'm sure that it hurt the Lord. I'm sure that there began a de-evolution inside of people and they began to start getting a hardened heart and I'm sure it hindered the relationship but all of the hindrance was on man's part. It wasn't God who withdrew from man. God was still faithful unto man. And then look what happened. When, all, when, Adam, uh, when Cain found out all of this, in verse 9 it says, The Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not him. I my brother's keeper. And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thine hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. The fugitive and a bag of vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now notice, there were consequences to his sin. I'm not saying that God approves of sin. Sin was a terrible thing. But look at when Cain found out about this, he says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that... Findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Here's God dealing with the first murderer on the face of the earth. And instead, God told him there were consequences. You're going to suffer from this. From now on, the earth isn't going to cooperate with you. It's not going to work because you have put into motion all of these terrible things that's going to affect you. There are consequences. But when Cain says, everybody's going to seek to kill me, God put a mark on Cain and protected the first murderer on the face of the earth. Instead of killing him, he gave him mercy. He gave him protection. And it says in the 16th verse that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. How can you leave something you didn't have? They still had the presence of the Lord. God was still walking and talking with man. God was being merciful unto them. I'm not saying that the relationship was the same as it was before because man was now defiled in their own conscience. This death had started working in them. But God was still being merciful, not imputing man's sins. And the first murderer on the face of the earth, instead of killing him, he guaranteed him protection. You know what the first person that violated the law was? It's in Numbers chapter 15, around verse 32, 33. The first person that ever violated the law of Moses was a man who went out on the Sabbath day and picked up some sticks so that he could make a fire and cook him something, and he didn't rest and follow the commands concerning the law. 
and they didn't know exactly what to do with him. They knew he broke the law of Moses, but they didn't know what to do, so they shut him up. And God spoke to Moses and said, kill him. Make an example out of him. So a man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath day to make a fire, what was his penalty? Death. No mercy. Stone him to death. The first person to ever sin after Adam and Eve was a person who murdered his brother. What was his punishment? Well, he suffered consequences. He didn't get the earth to produce as strong as it would and things like that, but God protected him and granted him life. Can you tell that there is a difference in the way God deals with people when He's not imputing their sins unto them and when He is imputing their sins? For the first 2,000 years, God basically, and there's some exceptions to this, I'll try and put this all into perspective, but basically God did not hold people's sins against them. He used people like Abraham, who was living in a sexual abomination, who didn't have enough character to defend his wife. He used people like Jacob, who was a liar and a thief and a con, and married two sisters in violation of what God's heart was, and yet he used all of these people... He used imperfect people. The truth is God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. And the Scripture makes it very clear that none of us deserve any of these things. And yet, somehow or another, we just think, oh, I've got to deserve God's blessing in my life. Nobody that God's ever used deserved it, and you aren't going to be the first one. So for the first 2,000 years, God was dealing with people in mercy. But you know what happened? Here's what I call the vertical and the horizontal effect of sin. This is just my own terminology to try and help people understand. Vertical means that sin was a transgression against God, worthy of judgment, worthy of punishment. For the first 2,000 years, God did not punish man's sin as a general rule. There was exceptions to that. I'll show you why. But as a whole, he didn't hold men's sins against them until the time that the law came. So this vertical effect of sin, God wasn't punishing people. But people were taking God's lack of punishment as approval or permission. And they were saying things like, if Cain got by with sin, got by with murder, I can get by with murder. Look right here in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. This happened right here. Lamech's great, great, I mean, uh, Cain's great, great, great grandson was named Lamech. He's the first man that ever married two women and, in in, you know, had two wives. And it says in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. That's just an old English way of saying that he killed a man in self-defense. His wasn't a malicious, premeditated murder. It was self-defense. And so he said in verse 24, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. You know what's wrong with that? God didn't say that. Lamech said it. Lamech just supposed. Cain got by with murder. He killed his brother. And yet God didn't kill him. He even set a mark on him and said, If anybody touches Cain, I'll avenge his death sevenfold. And so Lamech said, I'm more justified in my murder than what Cain was. So if Cain got by with murder, and if he's going to be avenged sevenfold, then I'm going to be avenged seventy and sevenfold. God didn't say that. 
What he was doing was comparing himself among himself, and he's saying, this guy got by with murder, so I can get by with murder. This person lives in homosexuality, and instead of God striking them dead, you know what? They became a movie star. They became a rock star. They've got money and fame, and their pictures on all of the uh, magazines, and so it must not be bad. People still do the same thing today, and they just don't recognize, because God doesn't judge sin, boom, and kill somebody, they think, you can get by with it. And so what was happening is, God wasn't judging sin, but this horizontal effect where it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Even though God wasn't punishing sin directly, Sin is still an inroad of Satan into your life. Every time you sin, you give an inroad to the devil to come into your life and to just kill you and to destroy you. And, and sin was destroying the human race. You know, the lifespan of man came from Methuselah lived to be 969 years. And within a relatively short period of time, about 1,000 year period of time, actually it was... Um, 1,656 years after the flood is when, I mean, after the uh, sin of Adam and Eve is when the flood came. And in the days of the flood, after they came back, after the rest of the people were killed, God said, I'm going to grant man 120 years. So in 1,656 years, lifespan had decreased from 969 down to 120. And then Moses is the one that said in Psalms chapter 90 that the days of a man's years shall be threescore years and ten. Moses, during his time, uh, man's lifespan was um, God granted us 70 years. And Moses came along just about 2,000 years after the fall of Adam and Eve. So in 2,000 years, man's lifespan was decreased to nearly one-tenth of what it had been. Not because God was punishing them, but because man, through sin, was giving Satan such inroad into their life that people were dying. And if God hadn't have said, I'll give you 70 years, people would have been dying at 10 and 15 years. It wasn't a maximum because Moses is the guy that said that, and he lived to be 120 so 70 years isn't the maximum. It was a minimum that God allotted people. If people die under 70 years, it's because Satan snuffed their life out with their cooperation. God has allotted us 70 years. So anyway, my point is, sin was destroying the human race. And if God hadn't have done something to limit sin, even though He wasn't bringing judgment on it, sin would have literally killed us, or at the very least, there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. The whole plan of God was in jeopardy. Sin was running so rampant, and it was because people were saying, well, Cain killed a person. He got by with it. Lamech killed a person. People were going out and they were killing people. They were living like animals. They didn't have a sense of right and wrong. They had lost their moral compass. They thought, everybody's living this way. Everybody's getting by with it. There must not be anything wrong with it. And so God gave the law. And there was multiple purposes, but one of it was to say, you think it's okay, you, don't, you think I don't care whether you murder and kill, whether you commit adultery, you think that I'm like you are? You think that it's all right to live in the moral corruption? I'll show you what holiness is. And he gave us a standard that was so strict, that was so pure, 
It was meant to condemn you and to show you how ungodly you are so that you would recognize, God, I have sinned against you. I need forgiveness. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was one of the purposes of the law, was to make you guilty and to show you your need for God. And let me just interject this. If you use the law for that purpose, it's still good. Look at this passage of Scripture over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says in verse 5, Now the end of the commandment, and what he's talking about here is that the end of the law, or you could say the fulfillment of the law, is charity, love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. That's just an old English term for saying that they're just, they're just you know, moving their mouth. They aren't making sense. It is foolish. It is ridiculous, the things that they're saying. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. There is a right use of the law and a wrong use of the law. Here's the right use of the law. Verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Who's a righteous man? Any person who's been born again, you have been made the righteousness of God. The law isn't made for a Christian. If you use the law for a non-Christian and use it properly then that's okay. But to use the law to tell a Christian that unless you do this and this and this, God won't bless you, or to say if you have done this, God is angry at you, is absolutely the wrong purpose of the law. The law is not made for a righteous man. The law is made to show you your need for a Savior, but once you come to the Savior, then the law is not good for you. That's what this says. The law isn't made for a righteous man. You know, here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. I was in Houston, Texas. This has been 25, 30 years ago. And I was holding a meeting there. He was in a hotel. And a guy walked in who was just, he was coming from the bar. He was either drunk or high on dope or something. I don't know. But he stood at the back for a while. Then he came in and he stood up at the back and he started yelling at me. There was two, three hundred people there. And he started yelling at me and challenging everything I was saying. And I tried to talk to him, but he was not listening, and so finally I just said, I command you to sit down and shut up in the name of Jesus. And this guy just plopped down like that. And I went on with the service. And then after the service was over, he came forward, and I sat on the front row, and I started telling this guy, I said, you know, Jesus loves you. Jesus can set you free. Whatever it is that you're on, uh, Jesus is better than that. You don't need all of these things. And I was telling him about the love of God. And this guy says, I don't need Jesus. He says, I am God. He says, I am God. God, I am, manif- I am God manifest in the flesh. And you know what? That's the kind of person the law was made for. The law is given to show you, you sorry thing, how dare you think that you are in God's category. You need to humble yourself and repent and call out to God for mercy. So, you know, I started talking to him about the love of God, but when he didn't feel like he needed the love of God, he was God. You know what I did? I whooped the law out on this guy. And I began to show him, you sorry thing, you stink in the nostrils of God. You aren't worth spitting on. 
and I began to use the law to beat this guy to a pulp, and I took the word, and in just minutes, this guy was in tears. Oh, God, have mercy on me. That's what the law is for, is to show you that you need God. And if you would use the law to show people their need for God, but once they recognize that, the law can't get them saved. All it can do is show them their need, and then you have to tell them about the grace and the mercy of God. And once they get born again, then you use the love of God and the fact that they're now a new creature to motivate them to live holy, not fear of punishment and fear of rejection. If you would use a law like that, it would work. Did you know that if you've ever studied revival, all of the great revivalists, this is the way that they operated. Charles Finney, you know, he ministered right here in Chicago, Dwight L. Moody, all these guys. You know what they would do? They would go in and they wouldn't stay for two or three days. They would stay for months. And what they would do, Charles Finney for a month would go in and preach the wrath and the condemnation of God, tell people that God is angry. He would point out the sins that were in society. He would come against it, and he would preach the wrath of God to where people were wailing and travailing and crying out to God for mercy. And then, after he got everybody miserable and feeling that God was going to just send them to hell the next heartbeat, he'd come in and tell them about Jesus loves you and Jesus bore your sin. And he would tell them, boy, they'd run to the front and they'd receive the salvation and they would see revival happen. And you know what? If we use the law like that to show people that you need God, you don't think you need God in your life, boy, you are deceived. The law will bring your conscience back to its right place in short order. You know, in our society today, you are watching things on television. You're reading magazines. You're looking at advertisements that a generation ago your parents or your grandparents would have considered terrible, terrible, terrible pornography. They wouldn't have allowed it. They would have screamed to high heaven. And yet you keep it on your desk. You let your kids look at things that just a few years ago was terrible pornography. We've lost our moral compass. Everything is relative. We see things happening. You see murder and people are making sexual comments and situational comedies and we are so far removed from what's right that you know what? There's still a purpose of the law is to show you what God's proper standard is. And that's one reason that God gave the law. It's like, you know, you're in quicksand. And if you could imagine this whole room was in quicksand. And all of us are sinking. But if we're all sinking at the same rate, you look over and you look at the person next to you and you say, well, I guess everybody, this is the way it is. You don't realize how much you're sinking. But if somebody had a standard, a ruler, or some kind of a pole over on the other thing that showed, you know, and it wasn't sinking, it was a proper standard, then you could measure yourself against that and say, I don't care what everybody else is doing. You know what? We're sinking. This is getting worse. We need to get out of here while we can. In a sense, that's what the law was. It was something totally separate from what people were doing. This is God saying, this is what my standard is. So that was one purpose of the law, was to remove deception. that I'm okay. I'm the same as everybody else. And then another purpose of the law was to take away self-righteousness. People thinking that, well, I know I'm not everything I should be, but at least I'm not like this person. At least I haven't done this. You know, I'm pretty good. God basically just raised the bar, the standard so high to say, you think you're good? Let me show you what good is. 
that it was to make you despair of ever trying to be good on your own. Again, it's one of the most amazing deceptions that Satan has ever put forth that the church has been preaching, here's what good is and you have to do this in order to have God move in your life. God didn't give the law so that by keeping it, you could release the power of God. He gave the law to show you that you can't ever keep it. Hang it up, give up, quit. Run up a white flag and say, God, if this is what you demand, I can't do it. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That was the purpose of the law. Instead, people are embracing it, saying, oh, God, thank you. Step one through 10,000. I only have 9,999 more to go. Boy, what deception. That's like somebody walking in here with a gun and saying, all right, I'm going to kill any person that can't jump and touch the ceiling. Or let me say it this way. Let's say that they come in and say, all right, I'm going to kill any person that can't jump. Some of you think, all right, I'll jump. How high? They say, the ceiling. Some of you might be able to jump higher than others. Some of you might not be able to get off the ground. But if the minimum standard was to touch this ceiling, you know what, you might as well quit trying. Nobody's ever going to make it. The only proper response would be to say, have mercy on me. That's why God gave the law, not so that you could keep all of it. Did you know in Leviticus chapter 20 through 22, over there it gives you the qualifications of the priest? And in the New Testament, we're all kings and priests unto the Lord. So if you believe that the New Testament and the Old Testament are all the same thing and that we're supposed to be living under this, then that means that you've got to keep all of these requirements of being a priest. Did you know that a priest couldn't have a mole on their body? A priest couldn't have a broken or a flat nose. You couldn't be stoop-shouldered. You had to have perfect uh, posture. You couldn't have poor eyesight. You couldn't be left-handed. Why did God say those things? Because Jesus is our high priest, and if you want to know what perfection is, God didn't make Adam and Eve to have poor eyesight. That's a result of the fall. That's an infirmity. God didn't make us to have moles on our body. That's a part of the fall. If you think that you're going to be good enough, God says it's not just a relative term. If you're going to approach me based on your goodness, then here's what I consider perfect. Here's the way I made Adam and Eve. They didn't have stooped shoulders. They didn't have broken bones. They didn't have flat noses. They didn't have moles on their body. If you're going to approach me on your own goodness, then here's what you've got to be. And he gave a standard that nobody can live by. Why did God do that? So that you could go burn the moles off of your body and try and appear as if you don't have these problems? No, God's just saying, you're going to trust in yourself? Here's perfection. Either you be perfect or come and receive it through a Savior. Receive it as a gift of grace. That was the purpose of the law. So until the law, sin was in the world, but sin isn't imputed where there is no law. And let me go to this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll stop and we'll pick up here in the morning. But I just want to show you this because I know some of you won't come back. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 9, well, let's read uh, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
And all things are of God who hath, past tense, reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, the word to wit means that is, here's what reconciliation is, here's, here's what reconciliation is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I've used that verse in Romans 5.13 to show that for the nearly the first 2,000 years, God didn't impute man's sins unto them. Then during the law, He did impute. He held sins against them. They had to pay, and if they picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, they had to die. If they committed adultery, stone them to death. If they cursed their parents, kill them. God held sins against people, but since the time of Jesus... He has not been imputing man's sins unto them. He didn't impute man's sins unto them through Jesus. Jesus fellowshiped with people that would have been stoned under the Old Testament. He forgave a woman taken in the very act of adultery and didn't impute their sins against them, didn't hold it against them. And He gave us this ministry of not holding people's sins against them, not preaching a sin consciousness and a relationship to God based according to your performance. That should be the message of the church. And yet, by and large, the church is preaching that you've got to do these things for God to love you. And if you do these wrong things, then God won't love you or He won't love you as much. Some degree of rejection, that's not the ministry of Jesus. And if you look at this as a whole, this means that we've been approximately 6,000 years since the fall of Adam and Eve. And 2,000 years of that, God dealt with us separate from our sins, not imputing our sins unto us. 2,000 years He did, and now there's been another 2,000 years that He's not been imputing our sins unto us. Over the whole 6,000 years, 4,000 years of that time, God has been operating in mercy and grace, not holding men's sins against them. But the church hasn't known it as a whole, and so for 4,000 years of our 6,000-year history, Man has been living under condemnation and guilt, thinking that God is ready to get them, punish them. God is rejecting them, displeased with them because of their sin. And we haven't been living into the, under the benefits of what Jesus came to produce. And because of it, we've got a wrong impression of God, and we're saying that God is about to judge America. God is the one that's killing you. God's the one that won't heal you because you have not, because you still smoke. God won't move in your life as long as there's sin in your life. I don't believe you go to hell or don't get your prayers answered because you smoke. You don't go to hell for smoking. You smell like you've been there, but you don't go to hell for smoking. Does that mean it's okay for you to smoke? It means God loves you, but it's stupid to smoke. You're stupid. Just like nailing a nail in your coffin every time you do that. I heard somebody say, I think you take seven minutes off of your life for every cigarette that you smoke. How dumb can you get and still breathe? You're stupid if you smoke. But God loves you, stupid, is what I'm saying. God is not mad at you. But you can smoke if you want to. And you'll still go to heaven. Matter of fact, you'll get there quicker. Amen. But it's just stupid. 
And so we're living in a day and age that God isn't mad at us. He's not imputing our sins unto us. And the sad fact is most Christians don't know this. And so when somebody comes along and says, God is angry. I was in a church in Toledo, Ohio. I met some people from Toledo, Ohio. And 25 years ago, I was in Toledo, Ohio. And a guy stood up and said, God is angry. God is furious. God is mad at you. And he delivered this prophecy. And I got up and I said, and God is not in that prophecy. I said, that is not God. And you know what? Some people got a little upset at me over saying that, but it's true. God's not angry at you. God's not mad at you. And yet people fall for stuff like that because they don't know the truth about God. They don't know who God is and they think God is imputing their sins unto them. And so they fall for this thing that God is judging you and God's about to destroy you. And if you leave this church, you're going to die or somebody in your family is going to die or your marriage is going to fall apart or your business is going to fall apart because God's judgment's going to be upon you. You better not touch God's prophet. Do his anointed no harm. I bet you some of you have heard that. Some of you have been cursed. And some of you have probably seen the curse come to pass and thought, God, I'm sorry. But you know what? That's not God. God didn't curse you. Those, the reason people fall for that is because they don't know the truth about God. That's what I'm trying to share. But you know what? The Old Testament law wasn't sin. It had a purpose. But the purpose wasn't to help you. It was to show you your sin. It helped in the sense that it took away your self-righteousness and your deception and it knocked you flat of your back so that the only way you could look is up. In that sense, it's good. But if you try and use it for any other purpose to, show, to help you become more worthy of God using you, to be a stepping stone. Thank you, Father, for showing me what I must do to get right with you. If you use it for any of those purposes, it's going to kill you. It's going to condemn you. It'll make sin come alive on the inside of you. It'll destroy you. And it'll give you a wrong impression of God that will keep you from having close relationship with God because your own conscience will condemn you and the law will just tell you nothing but you're sorry and unworthy and undone. If you're going to get close to God, and really, you can love God, but to have God love you and enjoy His pleasure, you'll never do that if you're still trying to relate to God under the law because you're, you're going to constantly fall short and feel unworthy. And that's where the vast majority of Christians are. Amen? You know, this is Friday night. We aren't in a church. We're in a hotel you are a stark, raving, mad fanatic to be here. Amen. You're either a fanatic or you were drugged here by a fanatic. Because this isn't your nod to God crowd on Sunday morning. So, you know what? I bet you that most of you in here believe in the supernatural power of God. My son was raised from the dead after being dead for five hours. He turned black and was in a cooler, stripped naked with a toe tag on. And he was raised from the dead after five hours. And today he works for us, and I've got a little granddaughter that's four years old, and praise God, it wouldn't have had her if, he, if the Lord hadn't raised him from the dead. Most of you believe in that. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't be here. So, you know what? You don't doubt 
that God has the power to do something like that. And if somebody came for and died right here in front of us, and if I said, I've seen people raised from the dead, I believe God's going to raise this person from the dead. How many of you believe that? Most of you in here would raise your hand and say, man, I believe it. You'd even get up here, you'd like to see it. So it's not that you doubt God can do anything. But you know where I'd lose the vast majority of you? Is if I say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for him. And all of a sudden, there's some of you that don't have a doubt, one, that God can do it. You don't doubt that God did it to my son. But when I say, you come up here and pray for it, all of a sudden, your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. You know what you're doubting? You aren't doubting that God has the power. What you're doubting is that God will do it through you because the law has shown you that you aren't the person that you're supposed to be and you still have the concept that God only uses people who are worthy to be used. And I'm telling you, it's not true. God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. And I'm not the first one. I am not qualified to be doing what I'm doing. And I'm doing by the grace of God. The only reason you have more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers is because you know you better than you know me. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. Amen. If you knew all of my hang-ups, if you knew me as well as Jamie did, you'd have trouble believing that God could use me. It's true. And that's the problem is, see, we know ourselves, our own conscience is constantly evaluating. Are you good enough? Have you done enough? Have you fasted enough? Have you prayed enough? And instead of doing it in the name of Jesus and getting it through who Jesus is, in our own conscience we're sitting here thinking, God, am I worthy now? Have I done enough? And the truth is, you'll never feel worthy. You will never feel qualified. And unless you crawl out from under the law and start receiving it through Jesus by the grace of God and not based on your performance, you will always believe God can do anything but that He hasn't done it. And you'll never see it done until you get out from under the law and start operating in the grace of God. Amen? If you can understand what I've said here tonight, you know what this should do? This should just free you up so that when the devil comes and condemns you and says, you sorry thing, what makes you think God would use you? Instead of trying to say, hey, I'm doing better than I've ever done. I'm fasting more. I'm reading the Bible. The moment you do that, you lost. Because even though you're better than you've ever been, who wants to be the best sinner that ever got denied something from God? The proper response is just to agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way and say, Guilty. (laughs) Thank God for Jesus. I think I'll pray in the name of Jesus. I think I'll get it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, you got me. I'm guilty, but thank God for Jesus. And you just stand strong in the name of Jesus. And you know what? When you do that condemnation, guilt just rolls off of you like water off a duck's back. And you aren't condemned and you walk in the joy of the Lord. That's the only way you can ever really believe that God is pleased with you is to recognize Ephesians 1, 6, God made you accepted in the beloved. Not accepted in yourself, not accepted in your performance, accepted through Jesus. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah. Praise God. 
So if you can, you need to come back in the morning because I'm going to start expounding on this that God is not imputing sin unto us and what that means to us. And I tell you what, this will change your life if you can get under the new covenant and out from under the old covenant where you believe God is dealing with you according to your sin. This will transform your life. Sin is the only thing that Satan ever had against you. And if sin is now not an issue, that means that Satan can't do anything unless you believe his lie, unless you fall for it. It's nothing for him to stick to. You're like Teflon. (laughs) Nothing can stick to you if you know that sin has already been dealt with. But if you believe that all of your sins are still being held against you, then all Satan's got to do is show you where you've missed it and you quit believing because you don't have any faith in yourself. There's nothing wrong with not having faith in yourself, but you need to recognize that you have faith in a Savior and you get it through Him. If there's anybody here tonight who's not born again, you must, must receive Jesus. And even though I've been preaching to Christians, if you listen to what I said, I told you about that God is not willing, He doesn't want to impute sin unto you. He's made an atonement for your sins. But sin still is a terrible inroad in your life. You cannot approach God based on your own goodness. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. And you need to receive a Savior. Jesus has paid for all of your sins, but you have to, in your heart, bow your knee in your heart and make Jesus your Lord, or you will split hell wide open. And I don't care if you're a better sinner than I am, who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? You need salvation. You need a Savior. If you've never made Jesus your Savior, you must do that tonight. It's not about joining a church. It's not about promising you're going to be good. It's about having a Savior, putting your faith in Him. And so you have to do that. If you've never done that, you need to do that.